Our first Bible reading is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. A great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs, in the agony of giving birth. Then another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. He still swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child, so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she, was, where she has a place prepared by God, so that there she can be nourished for 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back. But they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. But they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony. For they did not cling to life even in the face of death. Rejoice then, you heavens and those who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. Then from his mouth, the serpent poured water like a river after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman it opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had pulled from his mouth. 
Then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Then the dragon took his stand on the sand of the seashore. Our second Bible reading is taken from the book of Revelation chapter 13, verse 1 to 18. And I saw the beast rising out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on its horns were ten diadems, and on its heads were blasphemous names. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bird, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave it his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have received a death blow, but its mortal wound had been healed. In amazement, the whole earth followed the beast. They worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? The beast was given a mouth authoring haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blasphemy his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all the inhabitants of the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slaughtered. Let everyone who has an ear listen. If you are to be taken captive into captivity, you go. If you kill with the sword, with the sword you must be killed. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast that rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound had been healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth and in the sight of all. And by the signs that it is allowed to perform on behalf of the beast, it deceives the inhabitants on earth, failing them to make an image for the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast could even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, 
both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let anyone who understands calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. Now we're getting into it, aren't we? So this is our ongoing sermon series looking at the book of Revelation, which we're coming back to sort of once a month-ish through this year as we work our way through the book. And uh, we're really into some of the kind of fun mythological parts of the book of Revelation at the moment. Some of you may remember I said that when I was a teenager, the reason I uh, ended up kind of falling in love with the book of Revelation was it was the closest the Bible got to sci-fi and fantasy. And this is where that stuff really starts to hit home. So have you ever seen the film Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Uh, the first time I remember seeing this was at the cinema uh, when I was nine years old and my dad took me and I can still remember how tense I found it. I've seen it several times since over the years, mostly at Christmas, and it remains a great piece of theatre. It's kind of Steven Spielberg's storytelling at his absolute best. The key aspect to the plot, if you don't remember, is that the characters are trying to locate the lost Ark of the Covenant, the stone box containing the tablets with the Ten Commandments in that uh, accompanied the people of Israel on their wanderings around the wilderness and then ended up in the Jewish temple, but which was lost or destroyed, historically speaking, when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem in 586 BC. Well, I don't think it's a spoiler if uh, the film is nearly 40 years old, so I think I'm on safe ground in revealing that they do indeed find the Ark, with dramatic and deathly consequences, at least for the Nazis in the film. And then at the end of the film, the Ark is packaged up and hidden in a packing crate in a great big government warehouse, and, and that's the end of the film. Now, I don't want to uh, call into question the historicity of the film's version of events, but the reading we had earlier from the book of Revelation offers a slightly different take on the Ark's location. It may not be any more historical, but it perhaps is a little bit more theological. Uh, if you cast your mind back, if you were here for some of the previous sermons on Revelation, we've just got to the point of climax following the sounding of the, seven, the seventh trumpet. And then just in the last verse of chapter 11, which is where Solomon started our reading, John takes us a little step further in his vision of heaven that he's constructing here. And this time he shows the readers of the book a vision of the heavenly temple. So it's like, come with me up into heaven, the heavens are opened, come with me a bit further, we've gone in and we're in the city and now we're in the temple. And there, in the middle of the temple, in the middle of the heavenly city, in this vision, is uh, the lost Ark of the Covenant. It's not in an American warehouse, it's in God's heavenly temple. 
So it's traveled with the people of Israel through their wilderness journey. It spent some centuries in the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. It got lost under the Babylonian invasion and then passed into the realm of Jewish mythology. And then here we have it in heaven, says John. Well, one strand of the Jewish mythological tradition suggested that the ark would be revealed on earth at the end times. But in John's vision, it doesn't come into view on the earth, it comes into view in his vision of heaven. And whereas for the Jews, the ark had functioned as a symbol of their unique covenant with God, because it held the Ten Commandments that were the basis for the Jewish law, that was the basis for the covenant of Moses, in John's vision, it's now seen to be available to all the followers of the Lamb. So in other words, anybody who's a follower of Jesus has access to the covenant that's symbolised by the Ark of the Covenant. And so the covenant that is available to everyone accompanies them as they make their own exodus journey from slavery through the wilderness of the world to promised land. And the key point that John's making here, I think, in, in this verse where he talks about the ark being in heaven, is that he is challenging the direct equation of the people of Israel with the people of God. The people of Israel for many centuries had understood themselves as being God's chosen people and all other nations were out of that covenant. And in Christianity in the early centuries, you've got a rethinking of that going on. You get it in other New Testament texts like some of Paul's writings. And here we've got it in the book of Revelation. No longer is the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham restricted to just those who keep the law of Moses written on tablets of stone and stored in an ark in Jerusalem. Rather, the presence of God is seen by John to be with anyone who wants to make the journey from slavery in Babylon to New Jerusalem, from slavery in Egypt through the wilderness to promised land. And this vision of heaven opened and the ark glimpsed prepares the way for the sequence of visions that follow. And the next two chapters, chapters 12 and 13, which Solomon read so well for us earlier, contain some of the most vivid and compelling images in the book of Revelation. Let me remind you. John starts off by introducing us to a pregnant woman. She's dressed in sunlight, she's standing on the moon, and she's crowned with 12 stars. He then brings into vision her son, who's named as a child, who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron, and ends up in heaven. Then we meet a kind of unholy trinity of a dragon, and a scarlet beast from the sea, and a beast from the earth. Not to mention the mysterious mark of the beast, the number 666. If ever there were chapters guaranteed to cause confusion and misunderstanding, these are good candidates. But the key to making sense of them is to try and discern the motivations behind John's writing. Uh, you may remember me saying... Um, in previous sermons in this series, that one of the reasons Revelation can seem so confusing is because it has so many different characters. It's kind of like every chapter, there's a whole new cast 
And then they all wander off at the end of that chapter. In the next chapter, you've got a, another a whole new cast. They keep coming on, new character after new character. And I've suggested a few times that one way to simplify this is to realise that whilst there are absolutely loads of characters, there are a limited number of actors playing them all. This, of course, is exactly the way in which Greek theatre worked. And some of you will know that uh, a couple of weeks ago, Liz and I uh, went to Turkey, to Asia Minor, to Anatolia, and we visited the seven churches of the Book of Revelation. Sometime I'll give you a sideshow and tell you all about the archaeology. But uh, one of the things we saw in the museum in Ephesus were these masks that have been dug up. And they are theatrical masks that actors would have held in front of their faces to kind of give them different expressions and also to explain that they were playing different characters. So you'd end up with one actor playing several different characters throughout the play. We get this today. Liz and I went to see Midsummer Night's Dream at the Globe on Thursday night, and I suddenly realised partway through that the two actors who played the two characters at the beginning were also playing Oberon and Titania. It took me a moment to realise it, because they changed their costumes, but it was the same actors. And one of the things we can try and do is to unpick what's going on with the actors underneath in order to understand the parts they're playing. So I'll do that for you for a minute. So what's going on here in this story of a pregnant woman and her child and a dragon? Well, firstly, I think it serves as a bit of a reminder of the events so far. You know sometimes when you sit down to watch a TV programme and you, you part way through a series and you suddenly realise that they're beginning with a compressed version of events running over the previous few episodes to remind you of what leads you up to the drama that's taking place tonight. A kind of the story so far. Well, in Revelation chapter 12, at the halfway point in the book, John offers a kind of recapitulation of history to remind the people reading or hearing the book read about what's gone before. And he does this using three characters. The woman, her child, and a wicked dragon. And he presents what is, in effect, a kind of potted spiritual history of the world. So let's start with the woman. Many people see an image of the Virgin Mary in this woman. And if you go to Catholic churches around the world, and we always try and pop into churches wherever we are, you'll often find a, a, a nice ornate statue, uh, much like the one on the right here, uh, of... Mary depicted with a crown of 12 stars, or sometimes she's standing, I mean, in this case, she's standing with a, a dragon wrapped around her feet. Sometimes you get to standing on like half a crescent moon. Um, and this will be familiar, I'm sure, to many of us. And this is an interpretation of the woman from Revelation 12 as if she's the Virgin Mary. I'm not sure that that's actually what John has in mind here. I think it's what Christianity has done with this image over the last 2,000 years, but I'm not sure that John has the Virgin Mary in mind here, because he's, he's drawing on a variety of traditions that lie behind this. Jewish traditions, Egyptian traditions, Greek mythologies, and most significant, I think, in the background to John's image of this woman is Abraham's wife, Sarah. So you remember the story of Abraham and Sarah, and... Uh, God has promised Abraham that he's going to have descendants as many as the sand on the seashore and that they will be a blessing to all nations. And 
Abraham and Sarah are going, well, that's not going to happen, is it? Because Sarah's well past childbearing age. And so then, you know, Sarah gives her servant Hagar, and that doesn't work terribly well. And then we've got problems with Ishmael. And eventually, Sarah gets pregnant, and we've got Isaac. And so then the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham is seen to be that all the nations of the world will be blessed through Abraham's descendants, through his son Isaac. And I think John's got this in the background here. By this understanding, the woman represents not, not just Mary, who gives birth to the Messiah, but all the faithful of people of God down the ages. The 12 tribes of Israel are reflected in her crown of 12 stars. She does give birth to a messianic child who's proclaimed as the ruler of the nation. So there's a bit of Mary there, but it's probably much more that she's a personification of the people of God from whom the Messiah comes. And in this way, John is painting a picture of the Messiah Jesus coming into the world through the nation of Israel, being born from within the people of God. And he's showing the people of God then as good news to all nations in fulfilment with the covenant made with Abraham, that Abraham's descendants would be good news to everyone. The reason I think this matters is because I think it shows the book of Revelation's hope for universal salvation. There's a lot of uh, controversy uh, around in theological terms at the moment about universalism. You may have heard some of this. Are you a universalist is one of those text kind of questions. Are you a liberal or are you a conservative? Are you a universalist or aren't you? And I think the book of Revelation has a hope for universal salvation. Because Revelation does not, within its scheme, condemn the nations of the earth to eternal destruction. Rather, it shows how the faithful witness of the people of God, even in the face of terrible opposition, provides a path for the eventual ingathering of all the nations into the loving arms of God. And I'll be saying a lot more about this in the next sermon. But I just want to put a pin in the fact that I think Revelation has a universal hope for salvation, seen through this image of the woman. Then John introduces the dragon, this devil thrown out of heaven for bad behaviour to roam the earth wreaking havoc. Uh, does anybody know any of um, the devil's other names? Give a shout out if you can think of any. Can you think of any of the other names for the devil? Satan. Satan, did you say? Yes. Yep, Satan, that's one. Any others? Lucifer. Lucifer, yep, thank you. Any others? Beelzebub. Beelzebub, brilliant, thank you very much. Those are the three I got down. You can have some others as well, but let's start with Satan. Interestingly, this story of the expulsion of Satan from heaven, which is the name John uses for the devil here, is unique in the apocalypse. But it has its origins in a number of other Jewish traditions. John is a great one for taking stories that he knows from other traditions and then kind of just giving them a bit of a twist and a reworking in the book of Revelation. He uses source material. I mean, we know that Shakespeare did this a lot, didn't he? You can kind of unpick the, the, the sources behind Shakespeare, and you can do exactly the same with Revelation. John probably has in mind as the background to his story of the expulsion of Satan from heaven, the mythological account from the book of Genesis of sons of God coming to the earth to take human wives, resulting in giants of old called the Nephilim. 
If you don't believe me that that's in the Bible, read Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. It's one of those weird mythological bits of prehistory that you find in the early chapters of Genesis. And this story crops up in other examples of Jewish apocalyptic literature. So the book of Revelation is just one example of a genre that's known as apocalyptic. And if you read, for example, the book of 1 Enoch, you find a story called the story of the Watchers which is a, an apocalyptic reworking of the story of the Nephilim from Genesis. And John's probably got this idea of characters coming down to the earth, breeding with human women, giving birth to half-divine, half-human children that become the giants and heroes of old. He probably also has in mind a passage from the book of Isaiah, which refers to an ancient myth about the casting down of Venus, the morning star, from the heavens. So if you've ever watched the sunrise, sometimes you'll find there's one star that remains visible in the sky as the sun comes up, and that's the planet Venus. And as the sun comes up, Venus is still visible, Venus is still visible, and then suddenly when the sun gets to its full strength, it washes out the planet Venus and it disappears from the sky. And in this ancient Ugaritic myth, uh, this was that they kind of thought that what was going on in the heavens was the stories of the gods. So they thought that the, the morning star Venus was like a minor god, and then the sun was this great god known as Elyon, who rose up into the sky and caused Venus to fall from the sky to the earth as it was no longer visible. And in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah, the Jewish prophet, picks up this myth and uses it to have a go at the Assyrian king. So he's, trying, he's having a battle of wills with the Assyrian king, and he says to the Assyrian king, you're the morning star, you're Venus, you rise early, but when the great true God of Israel rises in the sky, you're going to fall from the heavens like the morning star does. So, if you've watched Lucifer the TV series, as I have, avidly, you will know that the character in that is played by Tom Ellis. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, Tom Ellis' dad has preached here at Bloomsbury. He's got Baptist minister family. Um, and uh, he's known as Lucifer Morningstar. So where does this name Lucifer? Somebody over here shouted out Lucifer as one of the names for the devil. Absolutely right. If you go to your Bible and you flick through the Bible, I absolutely promise you that unless you're looking at the King James Version, you're not going to find the word Lucifer in there. It's not in the Bible. So where does this come from? The identification of the morning star, Venus, who rises early and then falls, with a fallen angel known as Satan, is not a story in the Bible. It actually uh, comes into being much later in uh, the kind of much later in the Christian tradition. And it came about because of a translation error in the Middle Ages. So the Latin for Venus, for morning star, is actually the Latin for light giver. And if you know your Latin, that gives you lux for light and ifer meaning to give. So the lux ifer is the light giver, it's the morning star, it's Venus. And when the Latin Vulgate translation of Isaiah was being rendered into modern languages in the Middle Ages. Rather than translating it as morning star or Venus, they simply took the Latin phrase Luxifer and made it Lucifer. 
So it's just a translation error. The word Lucifer is not in the Bible. It's a translation error of Morningstar. But what's happened then in Christian mythology as the centuries have gone on is the idea of the morning star or Lucifer falling from the sky as the bright sun rises becomes combined with the story from the book of Revelation of Satan's expulsion from heaven and so the name Lucifer becomes another name for Satan. Ironically, it's Jesus, not Satan, who's described as the bright morning star in the book of Revelation. Chapter 2, 28, chapter 22, 16, also see 2 Peter 1. The New Testament and the book of Revelation calls Jesus the morning star. Probably nothing to do with that Ugaritic myth of falling from heaven, probably something to do with a messianic prophecy from the book of Numbers, that a star shall come out of Jacob. So you can see, can't you, there's all these different traditions in the background, and sometimes what we think we know we don't actually know. Anyway, all of these traditions of angelic beings descending from heaven to the earth provide something of the background for John's image of a satanic dragon being cast to the earth. Let's stay with the name Satan for just a moment longer. Did you know Satan only occurs three places in the Old Testament, all of them dating from the time of the Babylonian exile or later? So this is all quite late in the Jewish tradition. And the Hebrew word Satan, Satan is, is a word from Hebrew, it simply means adversary. So if you have an argument with somebody about something, they are the Satan, they're your adversary. And although later religious traditions of Satan as a spiritual opponent are clearly derivative of the Jewish material, the Old Testament references have to stand on their own right without being overlaid with later developments. So firstly, we have in 1 Chronicles a being described as a Satan prompting David to count the people of Israel. And this is probably just a reference to a human being who suggests that David might do something God doesn't want him to do, giving David bad advice. In the book of Job, there's a Satan appearing as one of the heavenly beings seen walking about on the earth. And he's, he's the heavenly being who has a bit of a bet with God about whether Job can be uh, you know, made to renounce God if enough bad things happen to him. But that's certainly not some angel that's fallen from the heavens down to the earth and is opposition to God. It's just one of the heavenly beings having a bit of a bet with God. And in the prophecy of Zechariah, Satan appears as a prosecuting counsel in the heavenly courtroom, somebody putting the other side. And that's it. It's this final notion of Satan as one who opposes that probably lies behind that time when Jesus describes Peter as Satan. You know the bit where Peter's trying to get him to avoid going to his death and Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And there are then a few other places in the New Testament where Satan appears as a bit more of a personified adversary. The thing I want to draw from all of these is that Satan in Scripture, both Old and New Testament, is always only, at his very worst, the enemy of humanity, not the enemy of God. The idea of the devil or Satan as a kind of bad version of God 
with Satan and God locked in endless combat between good and evil, might make good TV, and it certainly did in the recent series of Good Omens, but I'm afraid it's not biblical. The notion of Satan as one who is fallen is referred to by Jesus, who says, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning in Luke's Gospel. But this is a different thing to a war in heaven that we meet in Revelation, and it's probably a reference to the effects of Jesus' own ministry. Because as the 72 go out and bring good news, that's what triggers Jesus saying that. It's probably not a reference to some ancient time when Satan is cast down from heaven. Just for the sake of completeness, we do get some angels uh, briefly mentioned in the book of Jude as fallen angels. But this is another passage derivative of the Watchers myth, which I mentioned earlier from One Enoch, which is derivative of the Nephilim story from Genesis. And again, it doesn't convey on its own any concept of evil angels being expelled from heaven. It's really, really complicated. But basically, most of what you think you know about Satan and the devil isn't true. It's the, or isn't biblical, should I say. It's the result of medieval mystical speculation within the Western Christian tradition, reinforced by things like Dante's Inferno, finding their way down into popular culture and uh, Christian thinking in our time. And we need to just unpick some of that if we're going to get to grips with what John is doing with this language in a text written probably in the early 70s. So, to return to our story from Revelation. The dragon known as the devil and Satan, but not Lucifer, tries to lead the world astray and to kill the Messiah child and to devour the people of God. God is then seen protecting his people, leading them into the desert for a wilderness experience, paralleling that of the people of Israel in Old Testament times. God then snatches his son from the jaws of the dragon and takes him from death to eternity, leaving the dragon to roam the earth, making war on the other children of the woman. And I think this is where John is locating his own audience, Christians of the first century, and therefore by inference also us, within this story. They and we are those who keep God's command, holding firm to the witness of Jesus in the face of the onslaught from the dragon. The people of God, according to John's scheme here, are living in the wilderness with the dragon poised to make war, on all those who owe their allegiance to the Messiah Jesus. And all of this, I think, would have made perfect sense to John's first audience, because they only had to look around them to see ample evidence that the dragon was poised to strike. The Roman Empire towered over the congregations of the faithful, like a mighty beast set on their destruction. Just in the decade before Revelation was written, Nero had killed Christians, in Rome by tying them to stakes, covering them in tar and setting fire to them to light his gardens. All of this is in the background to the book of Revelation. They knew that the empire was a dragon and a beast ready to stamp on them at the first opportunity. So having reminded them of their history, having given them a glimpse of the throne room of heaven where it all began, shown them the Messiah child, escaping from the jaws of the dragon to his place before God's throne, John turns his attention to the difficult and dangerous situation facing the people of God 
as they live out their lives under the authority of Rome. And again, John is, is always presenting them with an alternative way of understanding, of viewing their lived reality. He confronts them with the heavenly perspective on their earthly situation. And I think we need ourselves the heavenly perspective on the world as we live in it. All too easily, we get sucked into seeing the world the way the world wants to be seen, and we do not see the world as heaven sees it. What would it mean for us, like those first century Christians, to realize that the world might be seen a bit differently when seen with God's eyes? John is trying to prepare his readers, then and now, for the difficult task of holding firm to the gospel and of overcoming evil and of enduring as faithful witnesses. John gives his audience this heavenly perspective through the story he tells of the dragon and the two beasts. So the dragon symbolizes the underlying source of all opposition to God. And the beast from the sea symbolizes the military and political power of Rome. And the beast from the earth is the propaganda machine that promotes the empire. So you've got an underlying force of evil. You've got a, mili a strong military empire. And you've got a functional propaganda machine. That's a very good description of the Roman Empire. But it is also a very good description of other empires that have occurred through human history since. You could imagine that being the communist empire. You could imagine that being the American empire, the British empire. An underlying source of evil, a functional military machine, and a good propaganda machine. What's interesting is that the beast from the earth, the propaganda machine, also has a face that can be recognized as the focus of the propaganda of Roman imperialism. And I think it's the Emperor Nero. Both in terms of the claims he made during his life to be God in human form, and in the stories that circulated after his death that he was going to return from the grave and take up power again. Nero really capitalized on what was known as the imperial cult. He wanted the whole empire to worship him. What does the beast want in the book of Revelation? It wants the world to worship it. I'm going to do my best just for a moment to prove to you that this beast is Nero. This isn't my own idea. I'm uh, shamelessly taking this from a New Testament scholar called Richard Borkham, who is one of the greatest Revelation scholars around. Did you know that the Jews used to take names and substitute letters for numbers? So it would be a bit like a kind of code where A is 1, B is 2, C is 3, D is 4. But it was slightly more sophisticated than that in terms of which numbers they gave to different letters. They would then add together the numbers that were assigned to a person's name and you'd arrive at the number of a name. So there's a bit of graffiti that was found in Pompeii which somebody had said, I love the girl whose number is 545. So it was a kind of, it was a thing that they did. It's called numerology. And they believed, because the Jewish uh, religion in that period had quite a strong mystical side to it, that you could tell something important about a person by the number of their name. Uh, my name has a number. If you, uh, I'll give you another example of the way in which you can turn a name into a number. Do you remember on mobile phones when we used to be able to do predictive text? 
and you could just type in the numbers and it would work out what the letters were that you were putting in it. If you type Simon, you do 74666, because M, O and N are all on the number six character. So you could say that my name includes the numbers 666. Don't make anything of that, please. <laughs> Revelation, if you take the Greek for Nero Caesar, you transliterate it into Hebrew, which means the vowels drop out, because Hebrew has no vowels, it only has consonants, and you assign the letters, the numbers that Jewish numerology assigns them. If you take the Greek for Nero Caesar, and you do that, and you turn it into a number, can you guess what the number for Nero Caesar is? 666. Interestingly, if you do the Latin for Nero Caesar, which is a very slightly different construction, and you add it up, you get 616. And there is, you guessed it, a divergent manuscript tradition of the book of Revelation which has the number of the beast not as 666 but as 616. What it looks like is they knew this and when they were working in a more Latinate tradition rather than a more Greek tradition, they actually altered the number in order that it still worked with Nero's name. Also, if you take the Greek word for beast, which is the Greek word therion, and you transliterate beast into Hebrew, therion into Hebrew, and you do the numbers, can you guess what you come up with? 666. I kind of imagine the writer of the book of Revelation is a bit like a contemporary cryptic crossword aficionado, sitting there going, Nero Caesar, 666, beast, 666, Six is one short of seven. Seven is the number of perfection. So it's a trinity of falling short of perception. And it's a beast. And it's... No, this is brilliant stuff. I can imagine getting really excited about this and putting it in the book. And then everybody for the next 2,000 years going, what on earth was he on about? <laughs> it's Nero. And through all of this imagery, John is seeking to give his audience a new understanding of their situation. So it sounds really complicated when you meet all the characters, but basically what John's trying to do in these two chapters is he's trying to go, remember your story. You are the heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. The people of God is no longer just the Jewish people. It's all those who follow Jesus. And you're there to be good news to the whole world. And Jesus was born and the, Satan, uh, the dragon pursued him and he's safe in heaven. And you're now in the wilderness of the world and the dragon is poised over you and the beast is the empire and it's trying to stamp on you. And the beast has a face which is Nero and that rings true, and this is your world. That's kind of what's going on in these two chapters. And what he wants them to realise is that in all of this, God is still with them. In the midst of all of this frightfulness, in the midst of all this terror, in the midst of Nero-burning Christians, God is still with them. Rome is not the bringer of peace that it proclaims to be. The Pax Romana is a lie. The peace of Rome is a lie. It just brings violence after violence because that's what empires do. Only in Christ, John would say, can peace be found. So when Rome claims to be the one who brings peace by violence, Rome is blaspheming God and making herself an idol for people to worship. 
So John is placing his readers right in the center of this great cosmic battle between the dragon and the faithful people of God. And I would suggest that we might seek to apply these insights to our own world. I want to suggest that wherever the forces of evil are manifested and made known through idolatrous, powerful and corrupt institutions, then the children of God, the army of the Lamb, are called by John into battle once again. John's vision always challenges the received view of history. It always undermines any presentation of empire as this glorious and beneficent institution. And this is as true of the contemporary empires of capitalism in our world as it was of the Roman Empire of the first century. And sometimes we might need to recognize individuals as they personify the evil that their empire does. I'm thinking of, you know, Hitler. I'm thinking of Pol Pot. I was in Cambodia earlier this year and saw the evils that the Khmer Rouge did to that country. Sometimes Nero-like individuals crop up and personify the evil of the empire that they represent in their time and place. And sometimes Christians need to have the courage to say that I am going to name and we're going to call it out for what it is. I'm very tentative to name names and I'm not going to do it now. But just give a bit of thought when you're looking at the world and reading about the world as to where these empires arise and sometimes need to be seen from heaven's perspective, not as they want to be seen, not as their propaganda machines sell them. Can we get heaven's perspective on the earthly situation? Just as in the first century, the imperial cult of emperor worship provided a direct religious focus for the claims of the empire over the hearts, minds, and bodies of its citizens. So in our world, we need to be alert to the temptations to hero-worship individuals or to seek to combine state and church in mutually beneficial deals of convenience. The place of the faithful church is always going to be one of wilderness journeying, protected by God, resistant to empire, on our way from slavery to freedom. This is our calling. This is who we are to be. We are the wilderness people, resisting the dragon, resisting the empire, living faithfully, never giving up. So let's pray. Loving God of all the earth, we come before you today seeking a fresh vision of your coming kingdom. Help us to see the world as it is and not how it wants to be seen. Teach us to pray for the world as it is, that it might become the world that it should be. Give us new ways of telling your story so that truth can echo down the millennia to our world today. We pray for all those who are deceived by the propaganda of empire who find themselves worshipping the contemporary beasts of idolatrous, corrupt and powerful institutions. From corporations to countries, from tribalism to nationalism, from destructive theologies to pervasive ideologies, 
We pray that truth will speak to power and that people trapped in cycles of hatred will discover the all-embracing love that you reveal to any who have eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray for those who live with conflict, facing daily the threat of physical harm to the property they own, to their person or to their families. We pray for people who are oppressed because of their ethnicity and because of the satanic lie that one life is worth more than another. We name Syria, Iran, Palestine, Yemen, Somalia, South Sudan and Nigeria. And we ask for the abiding peace of Christ to be made known in those countries of conflict. We pray for Christians who live in places where the churches of Christ are persecuted, where the might of oppression threatens to overwhelm the truth of the gospel. We think particularly of places where it is illegal or dangerous to be Christian or to convert to Christianity. And we name North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Sudan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran and Syria as the countries at the top of the human rights watch list for Christianity and persecution. We thank you for those mission organisations that bring the good news of Christ to countries such as these and we pray for them and for those who speak out to highlight persecution around the world. So we give thanks for BMS World Mission, for Christian Aid, for Open Doors and for Release International. We pray for those individuals of power who do great evil in the world, for the Neros of our time, we pray for those who are adversaries of truth, for the Satans of our world. May those who speak hatred and lies and who sow division and dissent and who misuse power for their own ends be unmasked and held to account for their actions. We pray for our own political leaders that they will resist the seductions of power and ever hold before them the common good of the people they represent. We pray especially for whoever will be the next Prime Minister of this country, that they will lead well, defend the weak and protect the vulnerable. We thank you for organisations such as the Joint Public Issues Team and Citizens UK, which work with churches to bring about justice in our society. And we recommit ourselves to being part of the answer to our prayers as we seek to live into being the kingdom for which we pray. Give us a vision of your great love for all people. And may we be faithful in all things. Amen.